A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from me. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us about your Son. And we pray now that your spirit would be in and amongst us as your people, not just as individuals, but as your people, together here as we meditate on this word, that it might be good for us, that we might see you more clearly, we might see just even more how much you love us, how much you care for us, how patient you are with us, and how much good you want for us. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are at least three aspects to what we just read that I think are useful for thinking about discipleship in Christ. The first thing is, what do we learn? That is, what do we see about God's heart in his treatment of his disciples, particularly in their, their confusion and really their inability to understand what he's telling them? And then second, what does Jesus say his disciples, or excuse me, why does Jesus say his disciples can endure hardship and suffering? Because they're going to. And then number three, why is prayer in particular, prayer to the Father, such a big deal? Well, let's start with how Jesus treats his disciples in their confusion and in their inability to, to figure it out or to catch his teaching. Well, if you look at the passage, if you start with verse 16, Jesus tells his disciples, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. And if you go through that, you'll notice that it's repeated multiple times, and this is not the first time he said it. He's already told them to this point, just even in John 13 through 17, that he's going to leave them, but we'll see them again. And we know from other gospel accounts that he had already told them on several occasions that he was purposely coming to Jerusalem to suffer and to die, but that he would be raised from the dead on the third day. So clearly, in one sense, he I don't know if he could be any clearer. Right. He, he has been saying this to them over and over again. And so he's he's basically when he's saying this, what can appear to be a cryptic phrase, he's just referencing what he's been telling them over and over. But in another sense, as as we've seen in previous weeks, he's not just referring to his death and his resurrection. He's referring to his ascension to the right hand of the father. 
and the subsequent pouring out of the, ascent, of, of the Holy Spirit, which would happen 50 days after that at Pentecost. So there will come a time when it appears as if Jesus has left them for good, despite his resurrection. In fact, we are in that position right now. But he will, in fact, by way of the Spirit, be in a deeper communion uh, with his people as, as God the Father, through Jesus and the power of the Spirit, will literally and truly make his home in and amongst his people. That is true for us, too. To those of us who know this story, though, who, who have been tracking with the Gospels for most of their life, who know how this is going to go, well, this seems all pretty straightforward to us. But to the disciples in that moment, this was anything but straightforward to them. So we read in verses 18 and 19 that they were, again, thoroughly confused by Jesus. And you get the sense that they, they didn't want to ask him to clarify because they haven't been getting it all along. They don't understand what he means. So they're just kind of keeping it to themselves. So Jesus, knowing that they're not tracking, knowing that they were confused, he tries to make things clearer for them. And this, this really gives you insight into uh, Jesus' heart and his, his character and how he loves and he treats his disciples and really by extension how he treats us too. So consider you know, that he's hours away from being arrested, tortured, and crucified. He knows what's coming. I can't imagine the stress that's on him in that moment, and yet he's not exas- exasperated by his disciples' lack of understanding. He's not throwing up his hands in frustration with them. When I come home, for example, after a long day and I'm tired, that's how I tend to be. But Christ in this moment is not acting like that. No, again, he, he patiently and he gently takes the time to teach them. And this is exactly how good teachers treat their students. You know, so for example, a, a good elementary school teacher, and, and I feel like I know one, uh, is it merely concerned with the grade a student receives on any particular test or just their behavior for the day or what they can show to parents, you know, at the end of a quarter or, or something like that? A good teacher keeps in mind that mastering fundamental skills will impact that student's future ability to navigate the world, right? So we, we don't learn how to read and all the grammar and the rules that, that comes with that simply to have the skill. No, we learn how to read in order to better engage with the world and other humans. So to not be able to read, for example, puts a person at such a huge disadvantage in our literate culture. I mean, just think about how difficult simple tasks, like going through the drive through line at Wendy's, would be, or, or even just making sense of a phone, or as I mentioned this morning in Sunday school, just buying a car and the amount of paperwork, or getting a driver's license. See, a good teacher is sympathetic to what the student will face and how hard life can be, not just in the coming years of school, but in the future long after school is over. So even though the teacher herself has mastered these elementary things years ago, and they are beyond simple to her, she patiently and gently endures with her students because she wants them to flourish. That's love. Good teachers give themselves to their students. And that's the consistent picture we have of Jesus. He's a patient and gentle teacher 
who wants the best for his people. Now, of course, the consistent picture we have of the disciples is that they were slow on the take. Now, now to be sure, they, they left everything to follow Jesus, which is beyond remarkable to me. I can't imagine that kind of commitment that they did. But still, if you just consider, consider Peter alone, and he, he was the leader of the disciples at this point, you know, in one moment, he could make absolutely heartfelt, orthodox statements about Jesus, and then in the next minute, take it all back with his sinful desires. And in this section of John, he's already made the declaration that he would lay down his life for Jesus, and yet we know. We know. And Jesus knew it too when Peter said it and told him as much that his claim was not only hollow, he would in fact abandon Jesus. But how did Jesus treat Peter after that? Well, we know how the story goes, right? He gently restored him and continued to work with him and through him, right? He continued to his mission for Peter. He continued on with it. And Peter was a changed man because of it. See, God knows you. He knows exactly what you are struggling with. He knows what sin persists in your life. He knows exactly where you're stumbling or being enticed to follow after things other than him. He knows how often you abandon him. He knows every last bit of you, and yet he patiently, he gently, he sympathetically endures with you. And I, you know, I hesitate to use that word endure because it makes it sound like he'd rather not have to do it, right? Like how a basketball player has to endure sprints at the end of practice. He'd rather not do it, but he, oh, he knows it's for his good. No, as, as the best teacher there is, he wants to patiently walk with us. He wants to teach us. He wants to commune with us. The time and the effort, it's worth it to him. It's worth it to him. But he's not doing this at some remove from us as if what he's teaching his people is something that comes easy to him and he's, he's really never had to deal with how, how hard this is. You know, people jokingly assume that Jesus, like if he were to play basketball, right, that he just easily walked in perfection because we all know just how easily Jesus could dunk on you, right? That's simply not the case. That's not the picture we have in Scripture of all. And, and I think it was actually far harder for him than it was for us. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now that may not mean that, that much to you, but it absolutely should. As C.S. Lewis famously argued, we don't really know what it is to battle fully with temptation and sin because not only were we born into it, but because of that, we, we often give into it. You know, we're, we're so accustomed to giving into sin that we hardly recognize that we're sinful at all. In fact, more often than not, we either minimize our sin or we are blind to it altogether. But Jesus knows what temptation is far better than we do because he faced the very same temptations we've all faced, but he did not give in. He did not give in. Jesus knows exactly, exactly what it is to walk in our shoes far better than we do. It's why his patience and his gentleness is so remarkable and it shows you how much he wants what is 
best for you and is willing to take the time personally. And that's key. He takes the time personally for you so that you will grow. And you know, even the best human teachers, even the very best ones, they grow tired or they occasionally give up on kids or they get frustrated or exasperated or they start to recognize that despite their best efforts, they just can't overcome a kid's parents or their home life. But that's not Jesus. That is not Jesus. That said, that does not mean, however, that he will not allow us, if not lead us, through very difficult times. Look at verse 20. He says there, truly, truly, and whenever you see him say that, by the way, that's, that's a, not just a statement of truth, it's like a prayer, really. That's why we say amen, right, truly. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And these are, when you really start to think about it, these are really hard words. And in a certain sense, they're kind of terrifying words. Jesus is honest about the reality of what awaits his disciples as his disciples. He does not paint a picture of a utopian life with unicorns and cotton candy where his people will live their best lives in ease and pleasure. He just doesn't. And by the way, he doesn't talk about the life after death in those kinds of terms either, though clearly the life to come will be wonderful and amazing. As Tim Keller puts it, you know, God doesn't promise better life circumstances because you love him. He promises a better life, and that's, that's a key difference. But that better life, you see, is defined by, by God's love and communion with him, even as it may prove to be very difficult and painful at times. So, so Jesus has already told them, for example, that if the world hated him, it would hate them too. And if the world persecuted Jesus, it would persecute his people too. Now, what so often accompanies life with Christ is wonderful. It just is. It's wonderful. It's delightful. It's, it's beautiful. And make no mistake, there can be lots of that. There really can. But there is also often pain and suffering, suffering and maybe anxiety and sadness or loneliness. So on the one hand, when we start to think about this, suffering, it's just true of, of the human condition regardless of who you are. You know, just because a person gets cancer or, or suffers under abuse or has bouts of depression or anxiety is not an indication that they're actually being persecuted. No, that, that's just part of the misery of the human condition in a sinful world. And if you look at psych data right now, it is apparent that our culture, really for the first time since post-World War II, is at its unhappiest point. I mean, that's what, 70 years? It's at its unhappiest point. And that's not just Christians, that's the culture. It's why in response to the hardship of life, people so often try to build utopian towers of Babel. You know, heaven on earth as, as they define it. That's America right now. And, as, as, and even as Christians, you know, we are tempted to do that too. But on the other hand, Jesus is clear that Christians, specifically because of him, will often face these things, these kinds of hardships and suffering because we are Christians. He tells his disciples they will weep and lament because of him, 
because of his coming death. And that, that sort of language there, that sort of emotional outpouring is what accompanies trauma or great loss. And you know, rightly so. I mean, everything they seem to have put their hope in will appear to have been destroyed or in vain. And their friend and their master will have suffered terribly in the process. I mean, we're still, the world will rejoice The world will take joy at their loss and mock their deepest conviction. And it's hard to imagine just how traumatizing the next few days must have been for the disciples as they watched everything Jesus told them play out. And it's not just that, you know, it appeared that they had backed the wrong horse. It's not just that Jesus, whom they loved, was arrested and tried and killed. It's that he was brutally and unjustly murdered in a public spectacle where both Jews and their enemies mocked Jesus. And, you know, in these days, I was trying to think of a way to put this in perspective because I just have never really experienced this at all. It might show up as, as people, get the picture now, as people taking selfies with Jesus as he's on the cross. Right? Like, is he in there? It's that kind of attitude to his suffering and his death. They mocked him. And they knew it was only a matter of time before Israel's leadership would perhaps come after them too. And as bad as all that would be, as final as that would feel, and again, I have no personal experience with anything remotely this bad in my life. It would not be the end of the story for them. Jesus promises that their sorrow would turn into a joy that could never be taken from them. How? How? Because Jesus, he says, would be raised from the dead and would never be taken from them again. And what's more, through his spirit, he would commune with them personally in a way they could never have imagined. Jesus would not just still be with him. He would be in communion with them. And nothing could change that fact. It's like what Paul says in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of of, of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says those words, not in some poetic spiritual flourish. He says this having endured beatings and rejections and all manner of hardship. So if you go through that list, 
That's rough. And he, he went through all of that, and yet he is confident that Christ is with him. I'll put it like this. I once heard a sermon preached on this very same passage while on a mission trip to a slum in a Mexican city, Mexican town really, just over the Texas border. The church was built out of cinder blocks and just a collection of whatever they could get to make a roof and seats and all that. And you, to get there, you had to pass over an open running sewage, right? It wasn't a sewage line, it just rolled right down the middle of the street where everybody dumped whatever in, into that thing. And I mean, to me, I was thinking, this is a tetanus shot waiting to happen my entire time there. I didn't even want the dirt on me. Despite their circumstances, the church listened to that sermon and they couldn't help but say amen. They were joyful and wholeheartedly agree with, with Paul's words, whereas me, you know, I couldn't wait to get home to my comfortable life. But that, that congregation knew in a way that I did not, where their joy actually comes from. And as important as your temporal circumstances are, and by the way, they are important. Sometimes you hear pastors say they don't matter. You'll hear that at funerals too, like the body doesn't matter, don't worry about it. If the body doesn't matter, tell me why there's resurrection. Your body is not a shell. It is integral to who you are and God cares deeply for it, just like he cares deeply about your circumstances. They are important and where God has placed you really matters and you are called to serve him where you are. But even so, the source of your joy is not found in those circumstances or how well things are going for you in them. They are found in Christ alone. That Mexican church knew Christ better than I did and I was there on a mission trip to them how foolish. You know, we have joy not because our circumstances can't change or that they are particularly good or bad. You know, as I started to learn on that mission trip as a young 20-something, money and pleasure and, and circumstance are no guarantee whatsoever on happiness or joy. No, in fact, money, happiness, and pleasure actually may kill kill our joy in Christ, if not take it away. No, we have joy because God has made his home in us and he will never let us go. So Jesus is clear. It is very possible, if not probable, that you will endure hard times. I wish it wasn't that way. I don't wanna go through it. Nobody does. Even so, as Jesus makes so poignantly clear, your suffering, your sorrow will not be the end of your story. And the way he describes how this works is both a really potent metaphor, but it is also a familiar scriptural motif that's, that's very important. Here's what verse 21 says. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So if you think about that, on the, on the one hand, that, that's a very visceral metaphor right, that pits the pain and suffering of childbirth with the joy of a baby. And you know, having witnessed childbirth, uh, the pain as horrible and tra traumatic as it is, and I, I cannot, I just cannot imagine what that feels like. Well, it's actually quickly forgotten in light of the baby. And that's the Christian life in a nutshell. This world is often 
very painful, but the end of our suffering is met with a, a joy, a joy of new life that cannot be taken from us because we are in Christ. We, are, we already, we already experience that new life now through union with Christ, but that new life will be completed as we all long for in the resurrection. But on the other hand, Jesus isn't just using a metaphor here. He's riffing on a theme that appears in Isaiah, for example. The imagery can be found in Isaiah 26 as well as 66, in which Israel was supposed to give birth to the Redeemer, but in her sin, she had utterly failed at her calling. So the Old Testament is, when you think about it, it's the unfolding of the promise that begins with Eve and is traced through Seth and Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, the prophets, that God would bring forth a redeemer, a human, a human who would restore everything that had been lost. Are we not getting ready to, to celebrate that for the next month with Advent? But as it says in Isaiah 26, for all her labor, all her suffering in bringing forth this child, and by the way, most of that suffering came because of her own sin, Israel very much like Abraham trying to bring about God's promise of a child in his own strength, she did not give birth to the Messiah. She gave birth to the wind. That is, Israel was an utter failure. And if you know anything about the book of Isaiah, intermingled with all the devastating indictments and judgments on Israel's sin, still the promise of the Redeemer remains. It remains the promise of a human who would bear the world's sin, restoring Israel and the nations to God. It's still there. And in Isaiah 26, despite her failures to God's, her failure as God's people, despite giving birth to the wind, God, who is faithful to Israel, still continued to promise resurrection. Well, it's not only in Isaiah. Paul makes use of this too in in Romans 8, there he, he talks about all of creation waiting in agony like birth pains for the coming redemption of humanity in the world itself. John, in Revelation 12, uses the same imagery to talk about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And my point, my point is that Jesus was saying that Israel's long-awaited labor that had been so futile and had amounted to nothing was coming to an end and what his death and resurrection would do, despite the appearance of defeat, is nothing short of ushering in the long-awaited new creation. That's why, for example, Paul speaks in Galatians 1 of being delivered from this present evil age into the coming new creation as if it's already happened. It's why he directly calls Christians in both 2 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 6, he calls them new creations. Now, new creation, it isn't a metaphor for a fresh start on a new you, as if Jesus wants us to make a New Year's resolution to lose 30 pounds or something like that. No, he literally means if you belong to Christ, you are already part of the new creation that began with Jesus' resurrection and is continuing to break into this present evil age. You already are in union with Christ. You already have a foot in the age to come. You already enjoy the benefits of the kingdom of God now 
which is already here, but obviously not yet fully here. So when people, they don't ask this very often, we're Presbyterians after all, but when they do ask me when I think the end times will begin, you know what I tell them? Resurrection of Jesus. That's when it began. He has been steadily taking back the world since that time. His kingdom has been breaking across the world steadily for 2,000 years. So, for example, think of it this way. What appears to the run-of-the-mill worship service that isn't impacting much of anything? And by the way, lots of Christians view worship like what we're doing here exactly the same way too. But from heaven's perspective, this small gathering is like a pinprick of light shining in the darkness. Now, obviously, we aren't the only church in town, let alone the world. So all those lights aggregated together make for a powerful light shining in the darkness, bearing witness to the powers and principalities that not only have they been defeated, their time is short. Because of Jesus, what was once just isolated to Israel now extends to the corner, every corner of the world. His kingdom is billions with a B strong. So the shape of the discipleship Christ has called us to looks to the world's eyes like futility, if not outright stupidity. Why endure, though, if you think about it, why endure shame or ridicule or mockery if Christ's kingdom is not on the move and there is no joy to be had both now and in the future? Why pursue God and his ways if this life is all there is? Why bother to die to self and live to Christ if there is no resurrection to come? Why endure with an incompetent boss? Why seek to die to self in your marriage or raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, sacrificing? yourself and structure your time around weekly gathered worship or give your talents and energy to benefit someone else or struggle against selfishness or lust or hatred or gossip. Why do that? The only reason why. This is the only reason. Every other reason is hollow and a waste of your time. The only reason to pursue this is because God loves us and has made his home in us. Apart from that, it's just pragmatic and you're gonna die anyway. Why bother? And the reality of this comes home to us in the final thing Christ mentions in our passage this morning. In verses 23 and 24, Jesus teaches his disciples that the result of what he is doing for them, his death and his resurrection will be to give them access to the Father just as he has access to the Father. There's so much we could say about just these two little verses, and I'm not gonna be able to, I'm not gonna hit everything, but let me just say this. He's reversing. He's undoing what Adam and Eve lost in the garden by way of their sin. It's why the book of Hebrews goes to great length to show how Jesus, our great high priest, has restored us to communion with God. It's why we should take Hebrews 10, 19, for example, and following is a revolutionary statement. Let me read this for us. Just listen closely to this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, 
that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, that is the day of the Lord, his second coming, drawing near. With Moses, think through this now, with Moses and the Levitical system, no Israelite outside of the the high priest had direct access to God. And even that guy was limited and he could not see God face to face. Now, the people, of course, could pray to God, but still, like what we see with Moses, the high priest represented the people to God and God to the people. He was the go-between, the intermediary. Now, Jesus, of course, does this too, but you have to see what they're teaching here. He has gone a step farther. Jesus has eliminated everything that has kept us exiled from God. Nothing kept Jesus apart from God the Father, nothing. He is wanting to bring us into God's communion too. So he's pulled aside the curtain to the holy of holies. It's like he's grabbed us by the shoulder and said, come on, man, here we go. He's given us access to the Father. You know, in this life, this access to God the Father shows up in terms of prayer. We can go directly to the Father with all our concerns, our worries, and our needs in Jesus' name. It's like what Michael Spiegel recently said. He said, in this world, we are invited to come boldly before God's throne of grace. In the next world, we will be invited to come bodily, before God's throne of grace. Do you see the difference? We have access to God's throne room now. You do. You do. When we were praying earlier, and we will pray again, guess what? We have access to God the Father, and he hears us, and we have confidence through Christ that he does. But in the future, you will do this face to face. Even so, We really do have access now. So prayer, this is why Jesus highlights this over and over again in this passage. Prayer is a practice. It's more than a practice, it's a privilege that is fundamental to discipleship that both enjoys access to God's throne room right now, just as Isaiah did, but without the fear and the terror. No, actually God invites you. He wants you to come and it's, It's at the same time, it's future looking because one day we will bodily be in God's presence. Prayer, you see, is the habit and the posture of living right now in the kingdom of God and the new creation in our ordinary mundane lives. So to those who don't belong to God, what we do here looks like either a figment of our imagination or Maybe some kind of meditative thing, you know, geared towards wellness, you know, like maybe what the Buddhists do or maybe a a not so stretchful version of yoga. I don't know. But to those who know God, seeking him in prayer is not only an incredible privilege, it's vital and it's fundamental to our life with God because we are in union with him. So prayer is, is one of the most important means 
important ways, important vehicles, important practices by which God teaches us and works hope and faith in us and comforts us when things are hard. And he settles us and he prepares us for our life to come with him. In fact, prayer is the regular response to everything we experience in life. It should be. So let me, just as an example, end with the very last verses of the book of James as an example of how the leader of the Jerusalem church thought about this very thing. James writes this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. It's not that Elijah was a good man. He had a nature like ours. That is, he was a sinful man. And if you know anything about Elijah, he had his ups and downs. It's rather the God to whom he prayed that we have access to, that he has invited us to come. Let's do that now. Let's, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I so undervalue prayer. I so undervalue what a gift it is, what a privilege it is that we can come, that we in full confidence know that Jesus is interceding for us now, that the Spirit is at work among us now, no matter what we feel about that, and that you hear us and that you are with us, that you have invited us to come. May we be a people, I ask for us, that find our joy in you, whether it is a beautiful time, a wonderful time, or whether it's a really hard time. May you work joy in us because we have you, and with you is life. We pray all of this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.